Um, yeah, good morning. What a special morning, what a special uh, celebration. Um, I don't think it was a accident that uh, yesterday, just in the course of kind of my daily Bible reading and, and study, that I came across Isaiah 25 um, as I've been working through the book of Isaiah. And in uh, chapter 25, this uh, passage of scripture, God God says, in this mountain, you don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make to all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, uh, of wines on the lees well refined. So we're talking about a feast on a mountain, and uh, actually that mountain is talking about probably Zion in Jerusalem, but specifically Calvary where Jesus died. Uh, prophesying of the the death of Jesus and of course uh, Jesus was if you know anything of the Old Testament he became the fulfillment of the Passover lamb which was a feast that the Jews celebrated on an annual basis to celebrate that God passed over them and uh, they had to slay a, a, a unblemished uh, lamb every year and uh, that the blood of that lamb would in essence atone for the for the sins of the nation and Jesus <laughs> Jesus was the completion of that the fulfillment of that and being a perfect sinless sacrifice to God and of course we celebrate that in what we just did now communion we celebrate the eating of the bread and the wine which represents his body and blood you following God said in Isaiah 25 verse 6 that he's he's going to um, prepare a feast on that mountain he prophesied of it 800 years before it happened but you know the uh, son of God was not the only thing on the menu, on that mountain. Uh, it says two verses down, he, God, will swallow up death in victory. God himself was also partaking of this feast on this mountain through the person of Jesus. Just like Jesus was the one through whom God prepared a feast, Jesus was also the one through whom God swallowed up death in perpetuity, forever, and in victory. Death which is the ultimate fruit of sin, which all of us are guilty of, and deserving of the punishment of that, Jesus, God, in the person of Jesus, swallowed it up, gobbled it up, done for every single person who believes in Jesus. What, a, what an amazing thing that we have to celebrate. And so what I love is that theology is both and, and, and the truth of what Jesus has done for us is both positional in the sense of God positions the believer into certain positions, truths. Um, there are things that are available to us, but that position also is to become practical. It's supposed to result in some things. And so I want to speak into that because we've been looking at the whole idea of, of Jesus liberating us from cages. And again, you don't have to turn with me there now. You know what? Can we just pray? I just want to ask God to anoint his word. And I, I don't want to get into the speaking of his word without asking him to speak. It's his word, not mine. So, Lord, we do just, we, Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. Lord, you said that your word would make us free. And that we uh, would be your disciples and we would know the truth and the truth also would make us free. And so, Lord, we, we bring your words, your own words before you. 
and put, place our faith and our expectation that as we look at your word, that the fulfillment of it would happen in our lives. Lord, we pray, let, let the people in this room, let all of us be free as a result of looking at your word. Let the power of the Holy Spirit rest upon the preaching of your word. <laughs> and, uh, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. You don't need to turn with me there, but in Isaiah 61, which we look at often, which is where Jesus began his ministry, um, the first scripture that we hear Jesus quoting, he says this, that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord God has, a, has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Anybody heard that scripture before? Um, he uh, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So again, we talk about positional, we talk about practical. How, how many of you are happy that the work of Jesus isn't just to positionally do something to me, he's supposed to, it's supposed to actually bind up my broken heart. How many of you have ever had a broken heart before? In fact, every single one of us now probably have some element of our heart that's broken because this world has evil in it, and it breaks our heart. And so Jesus is saying that I have been, I have been sent by the Father to bind up broken hearts. But not just that, I've been sent to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And uh, we, most of us, in some capacity, are probably living in some dimension of captivity, but you don't really know that you're even in captivity until you start following the king. <laughs> that sounds good. I want to follow Jesus now, to find out I'm in captivity. No, it's as you're following Jesus, he begins to lead you into things that you realize, because of where I'm at, I can't move into that. And that's where we need deliverance. That's, that is where Jesus meets us to bring us into captivity. It's in the context of obedience as we follow him. If you're not following Jesus, the captivity doesn't even matter. In fact, the cage kind of feels comfortable. You following? And so he's, he's been sent to bind up brokenhearted, the, uh, brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. It happens as we follow him. And, um, and that's what I want to look at a bit this morning is something of the liberation from that from that place of bondage because here's the thing the cage that we find ourselves in oftentimes appears comfortable and it appears attractive sometimes it's it's a fearful thing to leave that cage because we've built our lives around the cage uh, but the but but leaving the cage is actually liberty. It's freeing. It's it's better life. So I'm just going to give you a practical example. And um, as we do oftentimes, I'm I'm going to be uber vulnerable. And uh, our kids in here? No. Okay, good. Many of you have heard me talk about this before, but I'm just going to be real with you. When I became a when I became a Christian uh, at the age of 17. Um, I had grown up in, in an environment that didn't exactly teach me about sexuality in a biblical way whatsoever. So for those of you who are old enough to remember, uh, the 1980s, I mean, remember the 80s were so sexualized. Remember that? Like, you, like Every movie was like complete like s sexual stuff. So that was my norm. And uh, of course, I was four years younger than my brother. My brother had a collection of certain kinds of magazines under his bed. And I was nine years old, and that was my introduction to sexuality. Uh, was was pornography, was just lustful stuff. That was, and I was inundated with it. 
and then uh, latchkey kid generation. Remember, anybody remember that in the 80s? Okay, maybe nobody. So my parents both worked, left us kids at home for the summer. So during the summer, I was reared by my sister. And in that culture, you know, pornography and all that kind of stuff, this is what boys do. And so feeding on that every day. We're talking about nine years old here. Flash, flash forward eight years later, I become a Christian. I had never once in my whole world up to that point ever thought that there was anything wrong with what, with what I was doing, with pornography, and it was just the way the world works, right? It's normal. And then, um, and many of you know, I didn't become a Christian in the context of a church. I spent a whole year as a Christian not even knowing that there were other people who had had the same experience as I had, so there was no person that was telling me that this was wrong. I started feeling a conviction on the inside of a grief about this thing, and that began to weigh on me and weigh on me and weigh on me. And then eventually, in my freshman year of college, along with some other changes, that became something that I began to repent of. But guess what? I was, I was, I had given my life to Jesus. I was wanting to live holy, live for him. And I found myself in the inability to, to stop the train of thoughts. Are you following what I'm saying? There was such a well-grooved path of uh, neuron, neuron, what did I just say? <laughs> that came out kind of weird, neuron. <laughs> of neural pathways, there we go. Such a well-grooved path. I mean, we're talking about eight years of this thing that I couldn't see a woman without f looking at the, you know, the contours and the thing and thinking about what she looks like without clothes on. I'm just being real. Can I be real? And I want to be real because Jesus wants real freedom. I was in a cage, my friends, wanting to please Jesus, inability to stop the train. And it was, it was an addiction. It was, it was horrible. And, um, and I went on a journey of seeking the Lord about this. And the cage, by the way, looked very attractive as I was in it. I began to realize I, I, I want to be outside of that cage where Jesus wants me to be, but I kind of want to stay in this cage because this is like all I know. And as I was uh, repenting, as I began to give that place uh, to the Lord, uh, the, the beginnings of breakthrough finally happened when one night as I was praying, I had a, a subtle epiphany. And I'm not talking about um, some kind of like, it wasn't like the angel Gabriel appeared. I mean, we're talking about a still small thing that happened. Morning, guys. Um, I, I, some of you know what I'm talking about. You just have these moments in connection with God where you just know his voice speaking into your spirit. And it's not like a voice. It's not like, I am God. It's, he, he, I just saw a penny dropped. It was like an epiphany. I just saw something, and, and this is it. That God created every woman as his daughter, every female as his daughter. He lo he lo the way that my dad sees my sister is something of the way that God sees every female. And he certainly does not see them as a sex object. In fact, my dad wants my sister to have a husband who's going to love her and take care of her and, and, uh, and, and be good to her and respect her. And that's, that's a, a portion of, of the way God feels about. And so I just, it was like a penny dropped. And I all of a sudden had, this is the simplicity of it. I all of a sudden had another perspective 
of how to see a female other than what had been taught me for years. Does that make sense? That seems so basic, right? But it was just seeing, because all I had seen with my eyes was a total other perspective. God just had to show me his perspective. Now, when I went back onto the campus the next day, and I saw, and we were in South Georgia, and, and it's hot, and people are wearing not a whole lot of clothes, and it's not helping people who want to get out of the cage that I was trying to get out of, right? And okay. <laughs> uh, I, every time I saw a situation where there would be a temptation, I had something to pull up out of my arsenal to reject the, the instinctive thought that would come through and to say, no, and G- I'm, I'm going to view her as a child of God, as a daughter of the king, to respect even if she sees herself as a sub- sex object, I'm not going, that's a lie. I'm not going to partner with that lie. And time after time after time, pulling that out of my arsenal and injecting that into my thoughts as the temptation came, didn't happen overnight, didn't even happen over a couple weeks, it didn't even happen over a couple months, it was probably about a year and a half later, I realized, I'm doing okay. I don't have a problem with this anymore. And let me tell you something. Freedom feels way better than the cage that seems so attractive when you're in it or when you're being invited into it, but it is a cage. And now I can relate to females and not have this constant bombardment of all these thoughts and feelings of compromise and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm free. Can I remind us what we read earlier? I have been sent, Jesus says, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. All of us are bound in some way. We're in a constant progression as we follow Jesus of being free and more free and more free and more free. And he proclaims that's the goodness of Jesus. Following Jesus actually is, as it says, good news. And so I just want to say as we're looking at the resurrection that this thing of of Jesus dying and being buried and then coming up from the dead. All of that is Jesus being fully God and yet fully human and identifying with all phases of what we are deserving of and what we are supposed to have happen. Jesus on the cross identified fully with our sin. He identified fully as a sinner. Having had no sin, he went to a cross to bear the punishment of sin. He identified fully. But on Holy Saturday, yesterday, He identified fully with death. He didn't like just kind of like breathe his last on the cross and then boom, I'm back because I'm God. That dude died. Sorry if I call him that dude. Is that all right? I'm not being irreverent. I'm just saying he died. As in like they said he was dead. Check his pulse. Pull him off the cross. Still not. They carried him all the way into a tomb. Buried him. Dead. Dead, dead. And it wasn't like the next day he came back. He spent a whole day dead in, on Saturday. And on, and on Sunday, he rose from the grave. And I want to say that thing of Saturday, that thing of like being in the tomb, that's like a cage, isn't it? A tomb. It's like a hewn out place from a rock that they placed his body. It's dark. It's impossible to get out of. It's death. And Jesus went there on our behalf, even as a picture to show you, I come out of that grave. That cage that you're stuck in has no power over the Son of God. When Sunday came, he rose up out of that. 
on our behalf. Just like he died on our behalf, he rose on our behalf. Not just so that we could go to heaven when we die, so that we can live in freedom from cages here. So, Matthew, Mark, you don't necessarily have to turn there with me, but I just want to reflect on this. Mark 15, 45. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. This is Pontius Pilate. And then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn, no, this is Joseph of Arimathea, and he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And so I want to ask us a question. In fact, I want to ask you to ask yourself the question, what is, what is my cage? What is my cage? Now, straight up, you're only really going to know your cage as you follow Jesus. It's in the following of Jesus that you discover the cage because what he begins to lead you into, your cage won't allow you to go. And that's when you find out about the cage. So this is not an inward introspective trying to analyze myself. This is actually a relational, I want to follow you, Jesus. But some of you might be very aware of the cage I'm dealing with right now. So we're going to ask ourselves, what is the cage? How do we know what a cage is? I, I, here's a couple questions. What continuously causes problems in you and through you? That thing you keep on going back to. It's like that scripture that says the dog will re- keep on returning to his own vomit. What is that vomit that you keep on returning to? That, you, that causes problems again and again and again and again. That train that won't stop. You know what I'm saying? The neural pathways keep on going back there, and I wouldn't even know how to, to stop it, and I don't have the power to stop it. Another question, what feels like the area in your life that is not yielded to God? Compromise. The sense of, I will trust God with this, this, and this, but don't touch this. That's indication of a cage. Another question, last one, what thoughts, practices, habits, or beliefs keep you from living in God's perfect will? I believed that God was holy, and yet there was some lust stuff going on that I was really attracted to, actually. And I have a dilemma between two things working inside of me. And freedom happens when we stop partnering with this one and align ourselves with that one, right? So, got good news for you. How many of you want to live free, by the way? Not, not live in a cage, right? I, here's here's a good news number one for us this morning. Despite the fact, because I can already feel there are people in the room who are feeling guilty, who are feeling overwhelmed, who are feeling condemned. You don't need to feel that way. Why? Because you can't get out of the cage on your own. I did not have the ability in and of myself to get out of the cage that I described you earlier. And by the way, that cage I described you earlier was one of a litany of cages that I've had to walk out of. So you are in good company if you feel like you've got some issues, right? Pastor here has issues, but I've seen some freedom in some issues, right? Good news number one, you can't get out of that cage. Good news number two, Jesus has already overcome it for you on your behalf. You're not trying to work to a place of victory. You're working from a place of victory. So if you would, if you have a Bible, if you just turn quickly to Colossians chapter 2, I want to read a couple scriptures 
Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 8, real, real quick over the next few minutes. So Colossians chapter 2, Jesus has already triumphed over your cage. Secret, a key to living in the freedom of Jesus proclaiming liberty to the cage is that the focus of your heart is not looking at your own righteousness or your own ability to get out of the cage yourself. You're not trying to get out of the cage, so to speak, so that Jesus can finally love you. And that is so the way I felt when I was in that cage. I can't wait to somehow get freedom here so I can finally be in a good place with Jesus. No, that's the whole thing of Jesus, is that before you even repented, he already died on the cross for you. He loved you before you even accepted him. You can't get him to love you anymore. You can't get him to invite you into fellowship with him any more than he already is. Your sin does not disqualify you from fellowship with Jesus. It, it is the invitation to be freed and delivered through fellowship with Jesus. I'm not yelling at you. I'm just excited. Do you, you hear what I'm saying? And so as you, it, it, the whole idea is the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who is me? Jesus. The focus is on him because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Who binds up the brokenhearted? It ain't you. It is you today, but it's him in you as he first binds up your broken heart and he sends you out so that he through you can bind up other broken hearts. He, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Who liberates the captives? Jesus. As you turn your focus off of yourself. Because you're never going to do the will of Jesus looking at yourself. You do the will of Jesus looking unto him. And as you look to him, you can find the freedom and the victory that he already has. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And you, being dead, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh he is made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses what having forgiven you all trespasses that's the position that we stand in today yeah but that's like scandalous like i can't be for no that's what he did at the cross if you place your faith in Jesus, you have sin still working in you. That's why you need to have had your sins forgiven already so that you can continue in a relationship with one that you aren't worthy to have a relationship with. He has forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took the law and wiped it out of the way in between man and God. That is no longer the basis upon which you can come and serve me. I'm not looking for you to fulfill a law. I'm looking for you to follow my son. Having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed, and this is what I wanted to get to, having disarmed. You guys know what disarmed means? I mean, I hear gunfire outside of my house fairly often around here. Anybody know? Disarmed. Take the, take the, the gun, the weapon away. If you look at the original Greek word used there, disarmed, it would, it would mean to wholly remove from oneself. So Jesus disarmed, wholly removed powers and principalities. Wholly removed them. There's no shred of it left upon Jesus. 
What is the power in principality? It is the fuel, the strength of the thing that is working in you to put you in a cage. Lust, which is a spirit, by the way. Lust was working in me. And yet Jesus had wholly disarmed lust. And the cool thing is, when I received Jesus, he came and lived in me. Which means that in me, a part of me is wholly victorious over lust. I just needed to get the rest of me to come into alignment with that part. What I'm saying is that it's not that you're trying to get to this place of victory. You already have victory inside of you if you have placed your faith in Jesus. There is a part of you, an intrinsically inseparable part of you that is God himself in you. He has the victory, and you do too. <laughs> you get to work from a, sorry, <laughs> getting a little excited again. I'm not laughing at you, I'm just excited. You have a part of you that is already victorious. You fight from a position of, the, of, 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 uh, of victory already. And so if you'll go with me a couple verses higher, I just want to point out that this power, as I just kind of alluded to, it's already in you. If you go to verse 9 with me. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, can I maybe say that in terms that we would say today? Jesus was God in his fullness inside of a human form. That's what Jesus was. You follow? Therefore, Jesus, the man, fully identified and represented God, and because he was fully man, he was able to fully identify and represent man, bringing the two together into one. You, are we making sense? In him, the fullness of God, God uh, dwelled bodily. Verse 10, and you are. Can I be a dork and ask you to say you are? I want you to say that. You are. In fact, say this, I am. Because when Paul's writing this, he's writing to people, and that's to us. And so he's saying, you are complete. Isn't that good news? You are complete. How many Christians, how many of us live our lives feeling very incomplete? Feeling like we're still trying to muster and get somewhere. Jesus, I mean, Paul is saying, you are not will be, are complete. How can he say that? I mean, have you hung out with Christians before? Ain't looking too complete to me, some of them, me included. You are complete in him. In other words, you, he identified fully with God. You are complete in him. So what he accomplished you now get to identify fully with him. The one who identified fully with God. Thus bringing together fully God and man. There is no division anymore between what God has always had and now what is inside of every person who has received Jesus. Because in Jesus there is completion. Who is the head of all principality and power? Remember what we said earlier about principality and power? He disarmed it. The head of principality and power, the power behind all of our cages, verse 11, in him, 
And so I just want to pause there before we go on. In him, what are we talking about in him? I would maybe say it this way. Some of you know that I also practice real estate. We're going we're gonna to deviate a, a bit, do a, kind of bring this into terms. What does this mean in him? Uh, a, if a person comes to me as a potential client and they decide, or Bob over here, he also practices real estate, person comes, let's say Bob, and, uh, and decides to use Bob as their realtor. Are we going to list or buy with you, Bob? Yeah, say both. Okay. <laughs> both is better. Uh, we're going to list our house with Bob. That means he's going to help us to sell the house. The moment you sign a listing contract with Bob, you have placed your faith in his ability to get the job done. You, he has this kind of skill set, and he's got this experience, and he's got this wisdom, and he's got stuff that he brings to the table as somebody who does real estate, and you are putting yourself under the covering of that so that now you leverage all of his skill, all of his wisdom, all of his know-how for your good in him. Do you follow what I'm saying? In him, Paul says. So in Jesus, Bob's able to get a client, right? to a closing table. Start the job and bring it all the way through to the end with happy smiles on everybody's faces, right? And he can also do mortgages. Okay. <laughs> Checks in the mail. Anyway, anyways, uh, in him, you were also circumcised. So we looked at what is it in him in relationship to a realtor. What does in him look like for the believer in relationship to Jesus? You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. That means in baptism, we're identifying with his death, where we repent of our life, life under our control, where we're not following Jesus. We're just following our own whims and our own ideas, buried with him in baptism, identifying with him, in which also you were raised with him. You will be raised with him. You were raised with him. This is a done deal. In the moment that Jesus raised from the grave, from the dead, he, he swallowed up death and victory. He won the victory on our behalf. So now every person who is called upon the name of the Lord has that victory inside of them already. You were raised with him. Yes, you will be raised one day and, and go with him into everlasting life in, in heaven. However, everlasting life in heaven begins here on this earth in so much that the Spirit of God dwells in you now to, to bring you into relationship with him now. Raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. I just want to switch over to Ephesians 1 real quick. Just reading some scripture over us this morning. And part of the reason is because Last week, Joel uh, Daniel, who came and visited and, and shared with us, wasn't that wonderful, spoke out of this very passage. And I want to bring us into remembrance today. And by the way, if you haven't heard that message, I would highly recommend go to our website, bordercitychurch.com, listen to that message. It was awesome. But Ephesians 1, 15, here's the Apostle Paul, and he's talking to this church in Ephesus, and he's telling them about what he's praying for them. And I would imagine, as the Apostle Paul, if he's praying this over a church that he cares dearly about, this is pretty significant as to the heart of God towards believers. This is what 
the prayer of heaven, can I say, is towards believers. He says, verse 15, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We're going to pause there. I just want to say, remember, what we're talking about here is that the power to free you from a cage is already in you. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all my friends if you have received jesus you become a part of this church and this church he has put all things under his feet to the church so that the church could walk in this earth in the same dominion that he himself has over all things i'm not talking about ruling and suppressing are we <laughs> understanding over other humans. I'm talking about ruling and dominating over stuff that puts people into cages, starting with our own selves. And the key is in verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Which makes us ask the question, what does it really mean to believe? And I think a lot of presentation in evangelical Christianity may have, I would humbly submit, tends to maybe be a little one-sided with that picture. Believe. It looks something like this, as it often is taught us, that it means to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to believe that God raised him from the dead, to believe doctrines and theories about Jesus. Whereas, what did it mean to believe in Jesus when he was here? He said, come follow me belief has an action and there's a fruit and an evidence of belief which means i give my heart to that one and he is now my leader that's what it means to believe pisteu the greek word it means to place your confidence in so to the ones who have made a decision that jesus and jesus alone is the messiah he is my leader the power that raised him from the dead is toward them as they follow the one who was raised from the dead. It's only in the context of following Jesus that the power of Jesus is released in our lives. This power is not for us, for our will. It's for him and his kingdom. And if we'll believe in Jesus in that sense, there is no limit to the power that you and I can walk in to glorify his name. So, if you'll turn with me, last scripture. Romans chapter 8. So 
he basically said, Jesus' resurrection has overcome all the powers of the enemy. Would you agree? And the overcoming power that raised him from the dead, that overcame all things, that overcoming power is now in the believer through the Spirit. And that power is released in our lives as we yield. And if you'll look with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's good news. Verse 12, Therefore, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. Paul's talking about living by the flesh, which is our impulses, our natural instincts. For me, that would have been yielding to lust, sexual lust, which had been trained and ingrained in my body and in my mind for all those years. That's living according to the flesh. But there's another thing of living by the Spirit. Well, that's, that's interesting. It, it, it suggests that there's another part of my being. I don't just have a body. I've also got a soul. and I've also got a spirit. And if we live by the Spirit, we can mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. But what is it even talking about living by the Spirit? It's talking about there is a Spirit inside of you right now, and in that Spirit is immeasurable love towards you. Because it, it's the Spirit of the one who decided of his own volition to die on a cross for you. Not for all those people out there. For Priscilla. For Rodney. For Paul. For you by name. That spirit has the same love that drove Jesus to a cross is in you and beckons you into fellowship. And it's as we live from a place of fellowship, of connecting with that spirit, which often happens through prayer, it happens through worship, it happens through praise. It's as we delight ourselves in the Lord and put our focus onto Jesus and, and begin to seek his face and seek communion with him, we tap into a realm of the spirit that gives us strength to not live in the flesh. Many Christians are out there trying to not live according to the flesh, and it's like an unoiled machine or, or, or engine that's trying to crank and all the gears are grinding against each other. It's life in the spirit, fellowship with God, communion with God that greases that machine and causes it to work. Am I making sense? I want us to understand what we mean by live in the spirit. If you, by the spirit, you put to deeds the death of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. God is calling us into fellowship and communion with him by the Spirit. That is the place of our victory. Full victory is already in you, but it only comes in the context of being led by the Spirit. And you're only led by the Spirit in so much as you're walking in that communion with him. That's why, by the way, we worship at the beginning of, of our gatherings. It's not because we're a church and we have to worship and then we take up an offering and we have announcements and then we have a preach. It's because we want to connect as a church family with the Spirit. Give Him first place. 
give Jesus before we do anything else. Let's connect with the Spirit. And I hope that we're all doing that. So what now? What do we what do we do with this? I would say connecting with the Spirit's important. But I just want to read this one passage of Scripture. You don't have to turn there now. James 4, 7 says this. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I am living testimony to some degree that that Scripture is true. There's stuff that was operating in my life that is not operating in my life anymore, and it's because of this principle. Submit to God. Don't just resist the devil. You got to first submit to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil. You've got to anchor your position first that I am submitted to God. How do you even do that? You remember the love of the one that you're submitting to. It's very hard to submit to one that you don't really know if he's got your best intentions in mind. That is what happened in the Garden of Eden at the fall. He Maybe he lied to me. Maybe if I eat the fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, I will be like him. Maybe he actually doesn't love me at all. In fact, I'm going to eat that fruit because he probably doesn't love me at all. And we have that same lie operating in us down to this very day. God doesn't really have our best intentions. If you submit to him, it will be bad. It's a lie. It, in fact, it is the lie. And to displace that lie, Jesus came to say, here's how I actually feel about you. You did the wrong. I'm going to bear the punishment. You can trust me. But the kingdom of God has a king, which means there is submission to a leader. And there is a king of that kingdom, and his name is Jesus. Submit, therefore, to God. Jesus is God. Then, it's when I anchor my place in the love of Jesus, and I yield my heart to submission to him because I know he is my leader, and he only leads my shepherd. He, he, I may walk through the valley of the shadow of my death, but I don't fear evil. He's good. He's my good shepherd. I trust in him. I anchor myself. And even if my flesh is squirming and wants to go that direction, I have learned that Jesus is always for my good and for everybody else's good. And so I submit myself to him. And as I take that position, from that position, I can resist the devil. And when that lust thing comes or when that a desire to, to run from my problems through intoxication yet again or to do whatever, to yell at my family or whatever it may be, I can resist that devil from that place and say, I belong to Jesus thus far and no more. I do not submit. You following? Submit to God, resist the devil, and as you anchor yourself in that place, and by the way, Brenda, and and, uh, I want to call you Priscilla, Jackie, are you ever going to fail at this? Right? Anybody ever failed? Submitted to God? I'm uh, Everything I have is yours, Jesus. And the next day you're doing the same thing once again. Anybody ever done that? It happens. But you don't stop. You submit back to him. And you find one who loves you and receives you again. And it's over time when the devil begins to realize that he's not going to get you. He's not going to have entry 
you've actually determined to have a stronghold of submission to God. He has no, he's wasting his time and he flees from you. You're building up a stronghold of defense where once there was a cage, now there is a stronghold of righteousness that, that instead of enslaving you, it, it holds you in, f in, a, in a space of freedom from the power of the evil one. So can we 